Welcome, everyone, to Northwestern University Law Review's podcast, Below the Line. My name is Sarah Chansky. I am the incoming editor-in-chief for Volume 116. And this volume and this year, we have sort of an informal focus on the American criminal justice system and the right to redemption, um, particularly the relationship between the criminal justice system and children or its relationship and how it treats children. This is partly motivated by a print piece that um, NULR is publishing in October in issue two called Redeeming Justice, which was authored by Terrell Carter, Kempa Songster, and Rachel Lopez, which is about an inherent right to redemption. But the impetus for this particular conversation is a current case that is before the Supreme Court. Um, It deals with a 15-year-old that was sentenced in Mississippi to life without parole what Terrell Carter and Kempis Songster would call death by incarceration. And the, the name of this case is Jones v. Mississippi. It was argued in November, um, and we're having this conversation in April before the decision is handed down by the Supreme Court. But today I'm talking to professor and attorney David Shapiro, clinical professor at Northwestern University Pritzker School of Law, and the director of the Supreme Court and appellate program of the Roderick and Solange MacArthur Justice Center. He argued for Brett Jones in the Supreme Court in November. David, is there anything that I missed in that lengthy introduction? Anything else you want to say about yourself or the work that you're doing? Uh, uh, no, that was that was perfect. Thanks, Sarah. It's nice to uh, be on this podcast with you. Yeah, thanks for thanks for joining and taking the time to talk about this. So um, let's talk a little bit about this case, Jones v. Mississippi. Um, Brett Jones, he was convicted of murder, which he committed when he was 15 years old. Mississippi sentenced him to life without parole. Can you just start by telling me a little bit about your client, Brett Jones? Um. Certainly. So, so I, I think that I should principally say um, that uh, my colleague Jake Howard uh, in the MacArthur Justice Center's Mississippi uh, office um, has been uh, representing uh, Brett for a long time um, and, and, uh, uh, in uh, the the Mississippi courts um, and, and 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 known Brett uh, for for a long time, um, as we show in. Uh, I, I lay out um, in our papers uh, before the Supreme Court. Um, Brett uh, had an extremely uh, difficult uh, childhood in which he was uh, the the subject of uh, very very serious um, abuse, um, and uh, his story uh, in in prison I think has been. Um, nothing short of remarkable um, in terms of the transformation that he's gone through. Um, uh, uh, at his sentencing hearing, uh, his, uh, there was testimony uh, from a correctional officer um, who spoke of um, Brett essentially being um, a model prisoner, someone who gets along uh, with with everyone, a very diligent worker, um, someone who uh, knows the Bible well, um, and uh, also um, Brett has really a spotless uh, disciplinary record, um, in, you know, including for a for a time well before um, uh, Miller and and Montgomery um, 
provided any possibility that anyone uh, who had been sentenced to uh, life without parole as a juvenile um, would have any uh, um, chance of getting out and thus any external incentive to be uh, uh, to, to, to not pick up disciplinary violations in in prison um, at, at the sentencing hearing um, uh, the um, the widow of of the victim um, uh, uh, testified. Uh, the, the the widow is also uh, Brett's grandmother, and it was uh, his his grandfather who who was killed. Um, and uh, so I, I and, and testified in 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 favor of of, of Brett. Um, and I think um, that really all just speaks to um, uh, what. Uh, an extraordinary um, story uh, he has had of um, really turning his life around despite um, the many, many years he's spent behind bars. So you've hinted a little bit at this story here, um, and I'm wondering maybe we need to back up just a little bit. Brett Jones was sentenced to life without parole for this crime that he committed when he was 15 years old. Um, now that sentence is being appealed or has been appealed to the Supreme Court. Can you explain briefly what the basis of that appeal is? Uh, for sure. Um, and, and maybe uh, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll revert a little bit uh, to the uh, legal landscape at the Supreme Court level uh, pre- predating and that, that leads up to the um, uh, appeal as it, as it interacts um, with, with uh, Brett's Brett's case. Um, there have been uh, three major cases um, so far, uh, you know, in, in the past decade or so, uh, dealing with juvenile sentencing. Uh, the first, uh, uh, Graham versus Florida, where the Supreme Court said um, uh, that a, a juvenile uh, offender who does not commit a homicide can't be sentenced to life without parole. Um, and um, in uh, Miller versus Alabama, um, the court uh, held uh, that only um, well that that you cannot have a uh, a, a mandatory sentencing regime uh, even uh, if if a juvenile uh, does uh, commit a murder, um, and that's because only permanently incorrigible juveniles can be sentenced to life without parole. Um, and so, if you have a, a mandatory regime. Um, there, there's no way uh, that a separation is occurring between um, those who are uh, permanently incorrigible and those who are not. Um, and then Montgomery versus Alabama uh, held that uh, the Miller decision was retroactive, um, and it held that um, because the permanent incorrigibility rule that Miller had announced um, uh, is, is is by its nature one that is uh, substantive in constitutional terms um, and therefore retroactive under the court's retroactivity jurisprudence. Um, so Brett, um, his uh, he initially um, was sentenced uh, to life without parole under a mandatory statute, um, and then he uh, had a new sentencing hearing after Miller versus Alabama. Um, but, uh, the, we argue in the Supreme court, um, that, uh, at that sentencing hearing, which res- resulted in his current sentence of life without parole, um, 
the, uh, the, the sentencing court did not determine uh, whether uh, he was permanently incorrigible, which is a prerequisite um, to sentencing him to life without parole. And we uh, know that because the uh, instructions that it received from the Mississippi Supreme Court said that as long as you consider some youth-related factors, uh, the sentence is, is constitutional, uh, irrespective of whether um, the, uh, the, the defendant is, uh, in fact, permanently incorrigible as opposed to capable of rehabilitation. Um, and so the issue um, that, uh, th that is uh, before the Supreme Court um, is you know, whether uh, some sort of a finding, uh, Im implicit, explicit, some sort of determination uh, uh, needs to be uh, made or inferred um, that a juvenile is permanently corrigible in order to authorize his uh, or her sentence to life without parole, because in Brett's case, uh, that did not happen. So that's really helpful. Thanks for giving us that context and the history that has led the Supreme Court to this point where they maybe need to make additional clarification. What is it, um, and, and I want to come back to what exactly is meant by permanent incorrigibility in just a moment, but maybe recentering again on, on Brett Jones' particular situation. What is it about Brett Jones in particular that makes you think and, and motivated you to argue that he is, in fact, not permanently incorrigible? Uh, Certainly. Well, I think uh, that, you know, having been in prison uh, for, uh, you know, for, for uh, 15 years at this point, over 15 years, um, the, the, the fact um, that he um, uh, is having a correctional officer prepared to testify on, um, uh, on, on how um, uh, uh, well he conducts himself um, in 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 prison um, and and uh, how hard uh, he has uh, worked um, to 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 learn and and, and really to become um, an ideal kind of model uh, a prisoner. Uh, I mean, if there is uh, anyone who is capable of rehabilitation, it's 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 Brad. And 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 remember, of course, um, you know, determining that, uh, that someone is not permanently incorrigible does not mean that they get paroled. Um, it just means that uh, that at some point they are able to go before a parole board. And of course, a parole board is not going to let someone out um, who is not um, uh, um, uh, re rehabilitated or, or creates a, a significant uh, real risk of, um, of, of, of uh, committing more, more crimes. And so the only question is eligibility to be even considered at some point uh, for for parole. Um, in terms of uh, uh, permanent incorrigibility, um, you know, uh, we, uh, we, we, we think that Montgomery essentially sets out what that means, where, it's, uh, where uh, the court says uh, incapable of rehabilitation. That's what it comes down to. So then moving on to another question, um, thinking about, you know, your work as an attorney and your practice what was it that motivated you to work on this particular case? At what point did you get involved, if you can speak to that? But then really, what was it that stood out to you here that made you think this is, this is, a, this is a client and this is a cause that I want to be involved with? 
Sure. Um, yeah. And, and, and as I said, I mean, uh, my colleague Jake uh, has been involved uh, with, with Brett uh, for, for a long time. Um, and, 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 and so um, my, my involvement um, didn't really start um, until um, uh, the, the case uh, had been decided um, adversely uh, to Brett uh, by the Mississippi Supreme Court um, after, after uh, Jake presented oral, oral argument. Um, and uh, so, so I uh, came on board um, at the time uh, that, that uh, the cert petition um, was was being prepared, um, and uh, actually a, a, a former uh, editor in chief of the Law Review, uh, Hillary Chutter Ames, was absolutely instrumental in the drafting uh, of of that uh, petition, um, and you know, and and she and Jake and I uh, collaborated on it um, and uh, and and filed it. Um, as for what spoke to me about the case, um, I think that um, uh, I you know. Uh, refer back to what I mentioned earlier about um, kind of who uh, Brett is and, 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 and his story. Um, and also, um, you know, this, this uh, um, is, is, is someone um, who had really just turned 15 um, at, at the time of, uh, of, of, uh, of the killing and uh, which also um, speaks to uh, the possibility for, uh, for, for change uh, uh, and, and rehabilitation that he so clearly demonstrates. And then um, you mentioned drafting the cert petition together. Can you talk a little bit more about um, how a team of attorneys works together on a case like this? Um, you were the one that did the argument before the Supreme Court. I assume there was extensive preparation beforehand for that, um, any um, what what is the work like leading up to such a, an important and very brief time that you're able to make that argument before the Supreme Court? Uh, sure, and yes, and so the the um, uh, you know once the cert was granted, um, it was uh, a, a much larger and, and broader team, um, a whole bunch of, of uh, students um, in, uh, in, in uh, my class um, and in uh, the Supreme Court clinic class um, uh, that Jeff Green and Carter Phillips teach were uh, involved in it. Um, and, and, um, and, and, you know, Jeff uh, uh, himself was extensively involved um, uh, as were uh, uh, colleagues of mine uh, at the MacArthur Justice Center, um, in, in addition to, to Jake. Um, many, many uh, people were extremely helpful with, you know, providing uh, feedback on briefs, um, helping uh, with uh, a whole series of uh, moots that, that were done. Um, it was something of a, uh, you know, unique experience uh, preparing for this uh, argument um, in that uh, it was conducted by phone, um, you, you know, in light of the in light of the, the pandemic, um, and um, as 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 you probably know, um, the the court has a different style of structuring the argument um, than uh, it it does in in ordinary times, rather than kind of a free for all where all the uh, justices jump in um, uh, um, when when they when they see fit. Um, the 
questioning is much more regimented um, with the chief justice starting off and then the justices uh, going in order of seniority and having a uh, limited time each. So rather than a conversation um, in which uh, the whole court is participating, it's a series of shorter conversations with an individual justice with the whole court listening. And that and, and that's just different um, than the usual format and, 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 of course, kind of affects the manner in which the preparation occurs. Most of my moots, you know, I did in that manner as opposed to the traditional moot fashion of everyone kind of jumping in whenever. Let's go back to, um, well, the case in particular, um, but also rewinding just a little bit to the cert petition being granted. Do you have any sense about what it was about this particular case that caused the Supreme Court to decide of the many cert petitions we get, this is one of the few that we want to actually address and bring before us? Um. I don't have any particular uh, in, insight or, or, or speculation on, on that. I, I will say um, that there uh, was a case uh, on uh, a juvenile life without parole case um, that had been argued uh, by, by the Supreme Court, um, and then uh, it became moot prior to a decision uh, when Virginia abolished life without parole. And, and then Jones was uh, granted uh, soon, soon thereafter. So, you know, it seems uh, possible and likely that the, the two things are, are connected. Okay. So we're having this conversation before the decision comes down from the Supreme Court. We can only speculate. But I want to talk for just a moment about what exactly it is that, that you um, are arguing that the Supreme Court could or should rule um, and I wonder, first of all, would it satisfy your argument for a court to be required simply to state, we find the defendant to be permanently incorrigible? Would that be a sufficient, um, a sufficient statement to satisfy what you think Miller requires of state courts with respect to juveniles? Oh, Yes. Absolutely, um, and 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 in fact, um, it um, as as I uh, uh, suggested to the to the court um, in in argument, um, it, uh, it it needn't be explicit at all. I mean, you know, it is ordinarily the case that one assumes that the trial court judge, the sentencing judge, uh, knows what the law is, um, and therefore um, that his or her uh, sentence reflects the necessary determinations um, that uh, the law requires. Um, what is uh, unique about this case um, is is that um, the Mississippi court system um, simply doesn't recognize the permanent incorrigibility requirement at all. That that it it, it, it and um, and and in fact in uh, Remanding this case uh, for the sentencing, uh, the Mississippi Supreme Court um, said, uh, you know, that as long as you uh, consider youth-related factors, um, the, the 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 sentence is uh, constitutional, and 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 that's and and that's simply in, in, incorrect. A, a determination, implicit or explicit, of permanent corrigibility uh, needs to be made. Um, and, and in this case, um, there wasn't an explicit determination and, and there wasn't an implicit one either, the, the, the implicit one that you 
usually have um, because uh, the um, uh, the surrounding Mississippi Supreme with Mississippi court system and specifically the Supreme Court, Mississippi Supreme Court on on remand um, suggested that all you needed to do was think about some factors. So it strikes me that your request is actually quite modest. The argument you're making is quite modest in that you're simply asking that courts may not explicitly reject the requirement in Miller that there be a determination of permanent incorrigibility. Is that an accurate understanding? Am I, am I misunderstanding your position? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, as, as the chief justice uh, said during, during the argument to um, uh, uh, one of uh, the, the other lawyers, uh, it doesn't sound like they, meaning us uh, are, are asking for, for a lot. And I think that's quite right. Um, the, uh, I, 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 at bottom, all that we're asking for um, is that the permanent incorrigibility rule um, be um, uh, uh, effectuated just like any other uh, legal rule uh, is 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 uh, effectuated, and that Miller sets out the permanent incorrigibility rule. Montgomery, um, as an integral part of its holding reiterates it uh, multiple times and, and makes it unmistakable. Um, and uh, the one just needs to be able to know in the ordinary ways um, that uh, the legal requirements have been complied with. That can be um, uh, explicit, as, as, as your earlier question pointed to, or it can be implicit um, uh, in, in the manner uh, that, that uh, we were uh, talking about where, where, where it's really implied uh, based on the ordinary assumption that in most cases, just not this one, uh, you can infer that the judge knows the law and that sentence uh, reflects that knowledge of the law. Mm. So one last question, maybe stepping away from this particular case, although certainly you could speak to how this particular case might help answer the question, but the, you've mentioned clinic work multiple times, the participation of students, the participation of MacArthur Justice Center attorneys from around the country. In this particular case, could you talk a little bit about the importance of clinic work and clinics like the MacArthur Justice Center in shaping the law and shaping the future of the legal profession? Um, sure. Yes, I'd, I'd, I'd be delighted to. I mean, I, I think that Clinical education is really a valuable uh, complement to uh, the work that uh, uh, and, and the learning that occurs in, in other classes. It's really um, the opportunity uh, to uh, apply one's learning of, of the law um, to uh, real-world situations, um, and therefore can be most some of the most valuable and, and, and relevant. Uh, work, um, relevant as it relates to sort of one's future professional activities uh, that one does um, in, in, in law school. And I think it really um, uh, can, can be in, invaluable training um, and, and is an important way uh, for students to kind of begin to see some of the power of the law and, 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 and the power that uh, a law degree uh, will provide them to, to, make, uh, uh, to make change. Um, and uh, to, 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 to use um, the, the power and, and, and privilege that comes with that degree um, to try to uh, make the world a better place in some, uh, in, in some 
way. Um, I think that the MacArthur Justice, I think, you know, all of the clinics uh, that we uh, offer at, at Northwestern through the Bloom Legal Clinic are, are, are top notch. Uh, obviously, there's a special place in my heart uh, for, for my group, uh, the MacArthur Justice Center. And I think, you know, one of the unique features uh, of it um, is is that, um, as you were saying, we've, we've kind of got a national presence. We've got uh, offices in states uh, throughout the country. Um, I, I direct um, a Supreme Court and appellate group in the MacArthur Justice Center that currently includes um, 15 lawyers. And, uh, and you know, with, with you as a student in my class, Sarah, as you've had the opportunity to uh, meet, you know, some of the other students, uh, I'm sorry, some of the other MacArthur lawyers, uh, you know, I, I think that the connection uh, to the broader activities and the broader mission of our organization to promote uh, civil rights in the criminal justice system um, kind of complements uh, the the learning opportunities uh, of, of of our clinic uh, in in particular. Thanks for that insight, and you know, obviously speaking as a as a I guess now former, we're almost at the end of the semester student in the clinic. It certainly was an incredible experience for me. I guess I'm wondering, um, you know, legal education is really important and the, the benefit that it gives to students to be able to engage practically. But I would hope that the benefit does not just flow one way to the students and to future attorneys. Um, is there a benefit? Is there an impact on the law and the and an improvement, as you said, in the area of civil rights in criminal justice, that somehow clinics are able to uniquely contribute to that growth and improvement and progressive movement apart from just, well, it's good for me and my education? Yes, I absolutely think so. Um, and I, 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 I think so for um, a, a couple of reasons. I mean, I, I think that the... Um, the location of clinics in law schools um, provides them um, with a connection um, to the the scholarly and research um, um, uh, uh, components of the law school that that can really make um, uh, a practice more more cutting edge and 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 also that uh, and 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 also more you know in, impactful um, in, in in terms of its ability to to get things done. I mean, particularly in Appellate and Supreme Court cases, um, you know, there is uh, uh, more more of a pronounced um, connection to uh, the, um, the 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 scholarship um, uh, at, than in some in, in some other areas of law. And so, I think that it, you know, particularly for uh, the type of work that that I do, um, it's 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 uh, enriched and becomes more effective um, as a result of being located in, in, in the law school. Um, and the work of uh, students like you, Sarah, um, in, in um, the, the clinics is absolutely uh, instrumental. I mean, it really um, makes uh, uh, clinics able to have a reach uh, that they never would have if it was just individual lawyers um, without, without um, students working on, on, on the cases. And uh, there is a huge um, lack of access to counsel and access to, 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 to justice um, when it comes to you know, people who have been um, impacted by the criminal justice system. Um, and uh, the, you know, the, just 
an, an, an an amount of need that that sometimes uh, just just feels close to in, insurmountable. Um, but uh, without uh, clinics and 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 the, and the student work that occurs in clinic and the extension uh, of of a lawyer's capacity that that work provides, um, uh, I, I think the, uh, the 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 problem would be even more intractable and the needs um, even even more difficult to even begin to meet. So it still remains, as we have often reflected, rather intract- intractable and difficult. Um, Professor David Shapiro, thank you so much for this conversation. I've been talking with David Shapiro, clinical professor at Northwestern University School of Law. He is also the director of the Supreme Court and Appellate Program at the MacArthur Justice Center and argued the case um, Jones v. Mississippi before the Supreme Court, which we anxiously await that decision. Good luck to you as you wait. I know you have many other things that you are busy working on, so you're not just sitting around waiting for that decision, but it must be weighing on you now as the time draws near that we would expect that decision. Um, looking looking forward to, to finding out the, the result. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. It's wonderful to uh, have this conversation with you. Thank you so much.